Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Professor Thomas Oatley is doing some of the most exciting politics research around at the moment, straddling international political economy, international relations and complexity science. One of an intrepid band of politics scholars who have embraced a complex systems approach to their research, Thomas has used this powerful heuristic to great effect in a series of recent interventions directly challenging some of the shibboleths of orthodox IPE and IR scholarship. Thomas's research provides a clear demonstration of the value of thinking in terms of complex systems for global politics scholars. And in what is perhaps his most ambitious project to date, he imaginatively exploits a complex systems approach to clarify the predicament that we find ourselves in when it comes to the climate crisis, seeking to inject a dose of realism into green industrial policy programs which fail to understand that the climate crisis is also an energy crisis. Societies develop to exploit the types of energy that they have. And they develop toward maximum maximum complexity um, given the parameters imposed by the energy system. And then if we can change the energy system somehow, then we can restructure society um, into maybe more complexity, but also a different kind of complexity. Professor Thomas Oatley is the Korosaniti Zondurak Chair of International Relations at Tulane University. His research focuses on the intersection of American hegemony and international political economy. We spoke with him in January 2023. I was really excited to find your work. It's kind of like, you know, discovering a fellow traveler on this, this sort of journey into complexity science. Someone else who finds concepts like ergodicity and hysteresis kind of fascinating and puzzling. Uh, and also, you know, your, your 2019 piece on the financial crisis, a complexity frame is a pretty audacious, I'd say, persuasive. Uh, critique, or some might say demolition, <laughs> of the dominant uh, open economy politics framework in international political economy. Um, which is perhaps an ironic name, given that the OEP approach actually assumes uh, the economy is a closed mechanical system, something we might, mm-hmm. we might get into. And then you follow up with this other fascinating article on complexity, energy and world order, where you accomplish an incredible amount in 8,000 words. It's really the kind of article I would love to be able to write. So I was super pleased to, to, to be able to contact you and invite you onto the podcast. So in broad terms, uh, and riffing on a phrase from one of our previous podcast guests, Nate Hagens, I think what you, you've really been pointing out is that the, that, that the problem we have in the discipline is a kind of complexity and energy blindness. Mm-hmm. That there are these kinds of persistent blind spots in how we think, in how we study, and these blind spots have really important implications for how we understand and act in the world. So I hope this conversation is going to kind of splice together both the complexity and energy threads. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might try and begin at the 
uh, at the beginning. So <laughs> I'll okay. be curious to ask, how did you first stumble across complexity science? And what was that aha moment? When did you realize, wow, this is actually compelling and important? Yeah. So I've been trying to reconstruct my um, journey um, down the complexity road. And, and I think that um, my first interaction with it came in graduate school. Um, and I think when I was in graduate school at Emory in Atlanta, um, there's one faculty person who was working in chaos theory. Um, and so that was kind of my first introduction to kind of the notion of fractals and, and chaos. Um, but I didn't find the chaos itself particularly interesting. Um, but then I stumbled across a book by Mitchell Waldrop, um, the full title, which I think um, I don't remember, but it's something like um, um, On the Edge of Chaos, and A New Science of Complexity or, or something uh, like that. And I think I remember finding that um, totally fascinating because it was this notion of a, a system that's kind of self-organizing, <clears throat> that doesn't require um, a coordinator, um, but still from bottom up, um, manages to produce some sort of persistent structure. Uh, and I found that um, a very useful way of thinking about kind of the international system, which is obviously um, a self-organizing system, um, regardless of what we think about hegemony. Uh, and so it always struck me that there were nice parallels um, between what was happening in complexity, complexity science and opportunities for um, applications in IR. Um, but I think I left that aside um, for many years. So I just never could figure out how to kind of bridge the gap. Um, we could talk about that if you'd like. Uh, but then post um, financial crisis, I kind of came back to it. Um, read some work by um, Per Bach um, and um, other people um, about um, complexity mechanisms. Uh, met Mark Blythe, had conversations with him about um, complexity science um, and just kind of um, decided that I was going to try to figure out um, if I could make this bridge um, from there to um, IPE. And when you say it was challenging to make that bridge mm -hmm. uh, uh, how how fundamental was that challenge for you so i'm thinking you know in a way uh we can only uh sort of create the realities that we can name right um so you know to use the fancy word complexity kind of breaks the conventional ontology that mm -hmm. we're used to and um i guess once you once you see, once you sort of understand complexity, you see it everywhere. But it's also there's also a translation cost to trying to bring that into your work and your life. So perhaps you would give us some insight into, yeah, how, how fundamental was that bridging process? How challenging was it? Um, wow, I think that for me, for me, at the core of the challenge. Um, lay the empirics and that I think that at least in the US complexity as it has been applied to social science has been very um, dominated by kind of the, the Santa Fe Institute approach, which is um, very much computer based modeling. So agent based modeling um, and often working with kind of toy models and simulated environments. And it didn't seem that that was my particular skill set. 
Um, it wasn't really something that I was particularly interested in investing um, my time in learning um, because I didn't really think that that was going to um, generate the kinds of insights into social processes that I was um, concerned to study. Um, but I didn't really have any other way to approach it. And so I think the big challenge has been for me um, how to take the, the core ideas of um, self-organization, um, complex adaptive systems, ergodicity, and other things and bring them into an empirical um, social science that in a way that is, um, <clears throat> I guess, has greater base validity and, and that people will find more uh, compelling and uh, persuasive. And that has been the challenge. Yeah, we actually had Jim Rutter on the podcast, former chair, chairperson of uh, the Santa Fe Institute. And that okay. was a fascinating conversation. I bet. I'll, I'll go back and listen to that one. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this, I, I remember one issue with the complexity science in that approach is kind of drawing this analogy to stigmergy, the way ant, ant nests coordinate and how that's not actually really an appropriate analogy for human coordination. Right. Uh, so there's an absence of agency and adaptive behavior, which perhaps is, is where we'll go. Next, I mean, I, you know, as someone who works in international relations, who has recently stumbled across complexity and got kind of quite excited about it and done a bit of research, I published one piece on governing complexity. Uh, I, I was perhaps surprised to note the degree of resistance uh, you know, within the discipline towards embracing complexity yeah. theory or complexity science. And there are distinctions there that can be drawn out. I mean, you write yourself that complexity theory, although, you know, it is there, you can go and find it now. It remains firmly on the margins. Yeah. What's your explanation for that, for that resistance? Um, so if I look at my notes, I wrote down uh, like 16 answers to that question. Uh, and so I think my explanation is that the um, complexity being at the margins is um, overdetermined um, in terms of social science. I think it's not, um, I think it's not intuitive. And so I don't think complexity is how humans think about the world. Um, intuitively. And so I think we are very much maybe hardwired to think about um, individuals making choices leading to outcomes, right? And, and so learning complexity requires a, a certain type of training, a certain type of willingness to think um, differently. So that's one. Um, and I think then in our social science um, training, um, we're really emphasized or <clears throat> encouraged to think in terms of methodological individualism, um, and whether we think about that as truly as individuals um, or kind of a national um, methodological nationalism. So the state or countries as a unit of analysis, all of that kind of reinforces our maybe hardwired way of thinking about the world in terms of actors and actions and outcomes. And um, that in turn is embedded in kind of our inheritance of mechanical systems from um, Newtonian physics through um, economics reliance upon them. And so we have this fairly um, uh, deterministic notion of systems. Um, and so even when we think about systems, we really think about them in ways that um, are quite different from a, a kind of a complexity approach. Um, and then finally, I would say linearity. And so I think the whole, certainly in IPE and IR, the whole <coughs> kind of um, large end quantitative analysis revolution 
um, that really struck in what the mid nineties or something, perhaps with the um, diffusion of desktop computing, I think uh, really reinforced our commitment to this kind of methodological individualism. Um, so it's a nice linear framework, collect data, do analysis, it all um, conforms to the underlying assumptions of regression and, and we move on. And so that's a nice teachable um, method. We can train students in it and go off and have them do it. So it's hard then to bring in a very different way of thinking um, that requires a very different set of methodological skills um, to achieve something that, um, well, we don't know what. So what, what's the what's the payout for this? Um, and it is unclear. And so I would also argue then there's a systemic component, network component to kind of reinforcing um, and the linear notion at the core and keeping everything else outside. I think that's really interesting. It, it, it reminds me in terms of that reinforcing about a quote by, from uh, Vikram Chandra, which is the world is a story we tell ourselves about the world. Mm, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and I think that if someone said to complexity theory, ah, oh, yeah, but that's just a, a story you're telling yourself about the world. What would be the argument against that, that, that complexity theory is something more than just one perspective on, on the world, but it's a, a, a different way of understanding? <clears throat> Um, I would think that I would say that, um, I mean, if everything is a story, then the question is, uh, what do different stories bring to the table um, that established stories omit? Um, and so I would think that for me, um, if I can use another quote, uh, it's Phil Anderson, uh, more is different. And so I think that one thing that we get from complexity theory is thinking about how aggregation um, creates emergent characteristics. Um, whether it's characteristics of the system or, or behavior of the system um, that we're not going to um, be able to derive from or extract from knowledge about the units or from knowledge about the units when we think about them additively. Um, so that's one. And so it may well be a story, um, but it's a story that tells us something novel, innovative that we can't get from other stories. And then I guess, secondly, I would say it's, um, it's really a story about change. Right. And so we can have lots of different mechanisms of change, um, but it is at its core a disequilibrium approach to thinking about systems um, that allows for, in fact, encourages us to, encourages us to think about how systems, um, I don't want to use the word evolve, but one could, but how they develop through time. And I think in juxtaposition to kind of the Newtonian approach, uh, there is no change. Um, in that system, at least certainly no um, fundamental change. Um, actors may be in different positions um, over time, but it's still the same system. System still conforms to the same properties. Um, it's just differently configured, but it's the same. Whereas in complexity, I think um, there's this great quote from um, <clears throat> Simon Conway, more Simon Conway. It's like once there were bacteria, um, now there is New York, which to me gets the notion of um, kind of uh, systems moving from lower levels of complexity to higher levels of complexity um, without really anyone out there um, imposing that complexity upon them. And to me, that also seems like a good characterization of how the international system has changed um, since between 1500 and today, certainly from less complexity to more. Um, so we should be able to say something about that. That's a great kind of platform on which we can build on this conversation, but I was, I was interested in something you said. Um, you said that it was the financial crash that made you kind of return to complexity theory. Right. Um, what was it about that kind of moment uh, that brought you back to complexity theory? 
Um, that's a good question. I think that I think the concern post crash about macroprudential regulation and safety um, is what kind of spoke to me most immediately. And thinking about that at the at the level of the financial system as a whole, you could go in and look at the individual financial institutions, look at their balance sheet. And given where real estate prices were and what um, their <clears throat> assets and liabilities looked like at the time, each institution in and of itself looked um, pretty safe. And so from a standard microprudential uh, regulatory approach, there didn't seem to be an issue. But what got um, neglected was the fact that everyone um, held essentially the same portfolio. And so everyone is exposed to the same risk. And so when housing prices collapsed, um, the system as a whole collapsed. And so that seemed perfectly illustrative of the idea that um, what happens at the system is um, not discoverable from looking at the individual units, that one needs to think about how those individual units aggregate and create something, um, different risks at the system level. So that was one. And then um, the more I read into it, and this I think comes in, in, in the 2019 paper, the more I began to think about how uh, I think in the paper, I call this the um, entropy information cycle, where we have some information about how, how the world works, um, but then we use that in useful ways. Um, and in using that information, we change how the world works. Um, and that seemed to me to be a good characterization of how uh, financial institutions used financial engineering and um, uh, securitization to transform real estate markets in a way that eliminated the risk diversifying properties that everyone believed were present. And, and, and as in, in so doing, um, created the conditions for the, um, for the crisis itself, both the buildup of um, assets and liabilities and also the crash. And it struck me that that was, for me anyway, um, a more a fuller understanding of what was going on than we had regulatory failure and we should blame um, Alan Greenspan and others for this. And sure, that may be a part of it, but how do you blame someone for not looking for something that they're not um, trained or encouraged to look for? And so there really seemed to have been more of a systemic um, failure, failure of how we think about the world rather than a failure of oversight or um, influence. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned the concept information entropy. I think it would be helpful for our audience just to maybe explain that. Um, my understanding is, <laughs> well, so my, I'll, I'll try and help you out a bit. So my, right, my, cool. <laughs> my understanding would be that essentially history is not a good guide to the future right. necessarily. That, yeah. that historical events, historical data has a shelf life, <clears throat> uh, particularly when you're dealing with systems which are, which are non-linear, uh, which are adaptive, which uh, lead to unpredictable, uh, unforeseen consequences. Um, I would like to link that to the importance of history. Okay. Because what also strikes me about 2008, it's almost like like 9-11 was, was a major shock to the system. That was geopolitically. 2008 yes. was a major shock to the financial system. Yes. And it's almost like that was the end of the end of history. Like politics came roaring back into life. Mm. And I wonder, you know, perhaps to stretch this a bit to the extent to which, um, kind of Newtonian mechanistic, uh, mm -hmm. systems understandings 
also serve an ideological function in the sense that they kind of hold everything constant. Um, and I, I would be curious to, to ask whether that resonates with you. I mean, in a sense, if we think about the open economy approach, this kind of conventional approach to understanding the economy as a closed system, I mean, it, as a philosophy of history, it's really just empty. And yes. I think what you're pointing out is that's really problematic. Yes. Um, it is very problematic. Uh, once we accept the possibility that our actions can, um, what well, I guess we're really talking about um, non-ergodic, ergodic systems, right? And so to what extent does um, our behavior collectively um, transform the world that we inhabit in fundamentally qualitative ways, such that information we have collected from the past to help us understand decisions we make today um, may not be very useful in making decisions in the future. And, and that seems to me kind of what I'm arguing in that paper. Um, whether we hang on to a Newtonian vision, I know that's an interesting question. So this is where do we root that? Is it kind of an ideological um, fixation on stability and certainty? Or is it more of a, a broader human need for certainty in their our understanding of the environment we have it inhabit um is hubris um i don't know which of those is the um the right answer or whether it's parts of all of that what do you think Yeah, I tend to embrace holism, I think, when it comes to these, these okay. kinds of questions, which may not be very helpful. Yeah. I mean, it is, um, there is this odd, I don't know, um, not quite what the right word is, um, inconsistency between the, the notion that um, the social systems evolve or develop and, and transform and um, our ability to manipulate um, nature and social systems for for periods of time, um, and I think that uh, useful knowledge has this um, capacity to transform systems. And and I, I, yeah, and so it is that when the uh, change confronts uh, assumptions of um, static, um, that problems emerge. And I think the nine eleven is a, is another good example of this where. We kind of come out of the Cold War and we think that um, great power politics is over and we're living in a world of peace. And then all of a sudden something completely, un nah, not completely, but largely unanticipated and fundamentally novel in terms of the nature of the um, attacks um, um, manifests. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there is. I was going to say, is, again, run around yeah. and doing the, do the same search. So who do we blame? Right. And so we blame the Bush administration for downplaying the threat in the same way we blame the, the Federal Reserve and other regulators for um, not taking care. But it's hard to imagine something that has never occurred. So how do you imagine the unimaginable? Um, it's a tough one. Yeah, these are the sort of the, the black swan events, right, that Nicholas yeah, Taleb made famous, which yeah. are very tail end risks, but have huge consequences. Yes. I also think it's very interesting, uh, you know, people play around with these ideas of restricted complexity, the extent to which one can control uh, the, I guess, the, the, the environmental enabling and constraining factors and the extent mm -hmm. to which one can control that. One can engage in sort of probability assessments, at least, if not necessarily prediction. Um, 
And of course, linking this to your other paper on energy complexity and world order, um, well, it does strike me that Michael Burry, of course, the famous character in The Big Short, did seem to predict the financial or the subprime mortgage crisis, right? So yeah. was he using a restricted complexity heuristic to achieve that prediction, do you think? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. So you'll have to ask him. I mean, my, my inclination on this is that someone had to predict it um, for the market to be there. Someone has to be on the, the other side. Um, and so, I don't know, in hindsight, was he doing something special or was he just lucky? I don't, I don't know. Um, so so that's a question for a different person, I think. Yeah, sure. It's yeah, like Dr. Who. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering where this sits with kind of the information entropy cycle that you talk about in terms of being able to guess things or being able to predict things it, it adds credence to certain ways of viewing the world which might not be you know complexity which they might kind of endorse a way of viewing the world which isn't too helpful for the kind of challenges we're facing and i was wondering how you could talk if you could talk to information entropy and you know how that gives actors the possibility to predict these these events Um, so I think there's kind of, an, I guess my answer may be kind of, um, meta in the sense that, um, if everyone is aware of the information entropy cycle, um, does everyone take steps to incorporate that into their decision-making calculus and um, whatever that calculus might be, um, such that the kind of practical utility of knowing it's going on is devalued. Um, and if we actually, I don't know, do I want to go down that path? I don't really. Um, and so in that context, if, if an individual um, happens to figure this out, um, that the, the world has changed relative to all the assumptions that underlie uh, the models um, that Wall Street is using to calculate the risks, um, there's probably huge, huge advantages. Um, one, to um, keeping that information private is probably quite valuable. Um, but it might also be um, there are hundreds of other people who thought the world had changed, but thought the world had changed in slightly different ways. Right. Uh, and so if the world is changing, how do we know what that change looks like um, until the kind of we can kind of query the world enough to, to figure that out? And so it has to be uh, a kind of the repetition of the information gathering process um, in order to figure out um, how the world is drifting away from or being transformed out of what it used to look like. And I don't know how an individual alone acting in that way um, can be successful in that regard. And so I think that, you know, I'm going to come back to the 9-11 example. I mean, there were people running around the Bush administration in the early days saying, um, what was this one guy's name? I forget. Uh, inherited from the um, Clinton administration saying you got to pay attention to um, Al-Qaeda. They're, they're up to something. Um, but how do you know that he has extracted useful information and that this is the person you should look, um, pay attention to rather than um, the other people who you brought in who are telling you that uh, we can discount this risk quite significantly, um, right? And so it's really just how wide is that uncertainty um, in this uh, different world? Yeah. I was going to jump in here and ask you something around the, the, the finance. I, I will come back to this question, but just because my head's on this. So what would can we successfully predict the future 
using can can we do a better job using a, a, a complex perspective than we could from a simple like newtonian mechanistic perspective and and if not is there even such thing as success when it comes to being able to predict the future i mean as sam yeah. i think was alluding to you know if if i understand that everyone's conditioned in a certain way and i know that they're going to respond to a certain stimuli in a certain way because they've been conditioned into thinking simplistically in this way right. then i can beat the market i can do loads yes. of things and i can thrive but will that work forever or do you think there has to be a point at which that's just not how the world works you can't succeed in that way um i think that in the short run um complexity and a newtonian thinking probably converge on the same um, prediction right is uh, parameters are set behavior is structured on a particular set of beliefs um, and so in a short run period, uh, they probably aren't predicting very different things. Um, down the road, I think there's greater convergence. I would think a Newtonian um, prediction. I think this is a big part of Talib's point, right? Newtonian, if we think that everything is normally distributed, um, we're still going to make uh, pretty comfortable, confident predictions about what's going to happen a year, two years, five years in the future. Um, but if it's a complex system, um, then I think our uncertainty increases um, dramatically, exponentially, I don't know, as we move out from a short term into a, a longer term framework, um, simply because the the extent to which the recent past binds what's happening um, is um, dissipating. And so what happens in uh, 2006 is no longer really structured by what happens in 2001 um, for complexity theory, whereas it's pretty much the same distribution for a Newtonian system. So I think that you can make more confident predictions about the future um, if you stick to a Newtonian world than you can if you're a, using a complexity framework. But I think the Newtonian predictions are more likely to be um, in error <laughs> because the world is likely to have changed. And so we'll be um, more uncertain about a proper prediction than <laughs> less uncertain about an erroneous one. So that's how I would think about it. So I think, Thomas, uh, that, you know, you essentially put the financial crisis down to the subprime mortgage collapse, which is, you know, yeah. if you think about the crisis in financial terms, that is the reason for the crisis. But if you speak with, say, petroleum geologists, um, they'll actually point to the um, the global peak in, in conventional oil production in 2005 having, as having had a supply side shock on prices that have fed into increased interest rates. And actually, yeah. this was the real systemic background driver for the financial crisis. So to kind of, you know, bring mm. both of your projects together, uh, it seems that, as you say, like we need to take the system as a unit of analysis. Right. Um, but where do we draw the boundary on the system? And what is the, the fundamental driver of change within that system? Yes. So can you elaborate a little bit more on the um, <clears throat> how the um, increase in oil production triggered the, whether is it the buildup or the collapse? Yeah, so, okay, I'm not obviously a petroleum geologist, but um, the, very famously, there was a, a chap in the 60s called Marion Hubert who estimated in the 60s that sure. that uh, that global peak <coughs> uh, production of conventional oil would, would happen in 2004. 
and yes. he was he was one year off and he basically based that prediction on the obs- observable fact that it takes roughly 40 years from the discovery of an oil field to the mm-hmm. peak of production um so a lot of the peak oilers i'm sure you'll be familiar with uh, were tracking yeah. that closely and he yeah. kind of got that right that uh, conventional oil production globally did peak in 2005 but he underestimated the extent to which unconventional oil extraction would then sort of be unleashed onto the market through fracking yeah. and um tar sands and and so on but i guess the purposes of sort of our conversation it just speaks to the fact that uh it really depends where you're looking um, yes. you know in terms of trying to explain major systemic change uh you can look on you can look at within particular systems such as the financial system right. but then if you step back and i guess a bit like at you know uh, uh going to the theater if you then sort of step back to the back of the auditorium and you look from an even deeper or um sort of um, uh, a deeper perspective onto onto the, the the situation you're going to see multiple nested systems that are interacting Right. Having different effects. So yeah. it just struck me hey, reading your second piece on energy complexity world order that actually right. that's a very clear link between these two projects. It is actually. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but yes, I think that's absolutely right. Yes. So I you know, to segue perhaps into the okay. question of energy, uh you, you lay out why we're in quite a pickle when it comes to the green transition right and you again draw on very helpful complexity science concepts to to really grapple with you know the contours of that predicament being for example lock-in effects reinforcing feedback loops and and so on and you you talk about lock-in being both structural and coalitional right and i was wondering perhaps if you could elaborate a bit on that uh, I can sure try. Um, so, if, so why don't we start with the structural? Um, so I think the structural precedes the coalitional. Um, and so to make this in a maybe a um, historically concrete fashion, um, the way I kind of think about it is as we <clears throat> transition into the 20th century, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we really shift from a uh, relatively immobile society um, in which personal mobility is limited to, you know, um, animal carriages, um, railroads, um, shipping, move from that into a um, car dependent society. Certainly that goes furthest in the U.S., um, but it diffuses across the world um, to a greater and lesser extent everywhere. Um, and so that period seems to me one of um, far-reaching structural change, where not only do we um, create this new um, artifact, um, but we create the infrastructure that allows us to use it. Um, so interstate highways, um, distributed um, refueling sites, um, and then we organize our entire society around this enhanced mobility. Um, so we move to the suburbs rather than urban centers. Um, we move shopping out to the suburbs as well. Um, so people are working in one area, living somewhere else, and they become very car dependent. Um, and we could go on and talk about the um, rise of air travel um, to replace shipping and, and so on. So we articulate and develop this structure over time um, that it becomes very difficult for us to transform. 
And I see that today um, in a lot of the conversation about, so in the US, the IRA or the Green New Deal, um, a big component of it is electric vehicles. And that's great, um, introducing the EV on the road, and that's great. Um, but there one point, I looked this up the other day, 1.446 billion cars um, on the road today. And so introducing an EV doesn't really um, do anything to eliminate internal combustion engines, it just adds an EV um, to this existing infrastructure. And so <clears throat> that structure then, we're mobile, we've built our society around this mobility, induces us to continue to think about um, how do we create artifacts, implements that allow us to continue to be mobile? So they suit the social structure we've built. And I think that's a big constraint on our ability to imagine a different social organization that allows us to be uh, less dependent upon cars. And so the way we're going to get 1.446 billion cars off the road um, is to have a lot of them get parked permanently. Right. So it may well be we have one, but people don't drive them very often. And for that to occur, we need to change how we live, where we live, where we shop, where we work, and the distances between, um, or create alternative um, transportation systems, right? And obviously, Europe is much further ahead um, on this than is the U.S. Um, we talked about urban densities and such as a, a geographic space as a component of that, but that seems to me the structural problem, okay? If we built this um, social structure, how do we get rid of it? Um, it's tough. <clears throat> the coalitional part, I think, is... Um, these uh, implements, artifacts, infrastructure don't emerge by themselves. Um, we have built an entire economy around their production, uh, replacement, and maintenance. Um, and so we have um, in the US, I don't know what it is now, 800,000 people work in the auto industry, um, most of them engaged in producing internal combustion engine cars. And so they're very resistant to moving away from um, automobile manufacturing. I think globally, there's 65 million people working in the auto industry. So these people have a, have a clear vested interest in protecting the auto industry moving forward. And even if we shift from internal combustion cars to electric cars, um, it's um, still a reduction of the workforce by you know, somewhere between a third and a half, um, simply because of fewer moving parts and, and so forth, right? And so, um, so these people have a real strong incentive to protect their uh, well-being um, in ways that um, work their ways into the political system and provide opposition to meaningful pressures for change. And I think that coalitional um, restriction is affects not just the implements themselves, but also the broader, the broader structure. And so it's well, we don't want to support public transportation because that means fewer cars, which means higher probability that I lose my job. Um, we don't want to support alternative energy um, because that means um, <clears throat> fewer internal combustion cars. It's easier to have um, a clean EV. And so higher probability that, that I'll lose my job. And so I think there's a clear kind of um, coalition of interests in carbon intensive industries, um, not just uh, primary energy production, but um, those who are uh, dependent on these fossil fuels to produce things and especially produce things that are in turn dependent upon uh, fossil fuels for continued consumption. And that's really the coalitional structure that resists change. And then on the other side, you have, I, I think, not quite an empty set. Um, it's beginning to fill up, but who are the industrial advocates of green technology? Um, there are a few, but since a lot of that technology is um, nascent, um, there isn't the, the counterweight to coal-generated fire plants, to Ford, to GM. 
And then you have um, individuals who are um, exposed to and vulnerable to climate impacts um, living on the coasts and other areas. Um, but those seem to be um, very individualistic rather than um, organized interests. And so that seems to me the, the coalitional dynamics of um, transformation from brown to or dirty to clean. Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's definitely complex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, perhaps to to bring a concrete example into the mix, we had Adrian Buller on recently on the podcast, who is one of the architects of the of the Green New Deal um, in the Labour Manifesto of 2019. And I guess the question, you know, we're looking at both structural and coalitional constraints. Um, we're looking at say change in a complex system uh, structural constraints you could argue lead to a certain determinism uh, the politics and coalitional constraint perhaps there's more contingency there and i i would be curious to ask you know to what extent do you feel that politics is upstream or downstream from the sort of systemic dynamics towards more complexity more growth Mm -hmm. upstream or downstream I, I don't think I think that way um, so my answer would be that there really isn't a nice distinction to be made um, between state and society. And, and maybe this puts me um, perilously close to um, being a Marxist. <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of how I think about it. Um, and that the, the state isn't really independent of um, the underlying structure of interests um, that it uh, tries to represent. Um, and <clears throat> Therefore, it's um, midstream. It's in the middle of it. And I think the key to transformation then is um, for the emergence of a new cluster of interests to displace um, the legacy carbon intensive producers. And I think what is or has been restricting the rate of transformation has been the absence of that alternative coalition. Um, and I think that's especially problematic in the global economy, um, where the dominant producer of certainly implements for green electricity um, are located in, a, in China, where their ability to exert a transformative impact on coalitional politics in Europe and the US is essentially zero. Right. And, and so. That's, I think uh, we can import stuff, but it seems we don't want to do that. Uh, and so we want to push for green, but there's no large indigenous constituency um, that can make that effective. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's an energetic Marxism <laughs> in that what the state does is uh, reflect the interests of the um, energy intensive uh, group in society. Um, but that's how I think of it. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky, as you say, to understand uh, sort of 
where the where the intervention sits <laughs> uh and certainly this sort of notion of sort of sitting above society is yeah. problematic um and i mean it, it strikes me also that what your paper really gets across is that the politics itself is reinforced by the functional dependence of fossil f- fuels so if mm-hmm. we look at energy intensive transportation as you do or agriculture our societies are very dependent upon those basic public goods and those domains are very uh you know intensive in terms of hydrocarbon use and then of course we add on top of that the new information technology right. ecosystems which again are are essentially you know great complexity uh consuming greater energy we seem to be moving in that direction yes uh and i would be curious to ask you know you you riff on joseph tainter mm-hmm. and his explanation for well civilizational collapse right which is essentially this idea that um that we're blind to what to, to we're blind to the fact that what we've used energy for is to build more complexity yes and that eventually what happens is civilizational collapse becomes inevitable under the weight of its own complexity and we will have a simplification uh, which will be more or less chaotic mm-hmm. and i'm wondering you know where do you come down regarding tainter's thesis around the inevitability of collapse right. in complex <clears throat> civilizations okay um that's a great question and i will say that your um, articulation and characterization of Tainter's uh, thesis is perhaps the clearest um, and and most um, insightful and concise that I've ever heard. Um, and so, congratulations to you for that that characterization because I've I've been struggling to figure out how to encapsulate his argument in this nice concise form. And so and so that's very well done. Um, so I went back and I was I was kind of looking at at Tainter uh, for this reason. I think that. Um, I don't understand the mechanism for tainter, I think, is my kind of overarching. So uh, we run up this wall where the marginal return on increasing investment or energy is declining, and so we can't solve problems. Um, but there seems to be something else there that generates problems that are insolvable that um, then cause us to collapse unless we find new energy to invest in, in problem solving. And, and it's never, it hasn't been ever clear to me um, why, what that momentum um, is coming from. So that's, that's one. And so I think there's some unspecified dynamics going on in Tater um, that make it hard for me to fully embrace his argument about um, collapse of societies. So the way I would think about it is, um, and this is kind of the book that I'm trying to write on this, which is that societies develop to exploit the types of energy that they have. And they develop toward maximum maximum complexity, um, given the parameters imposed by the energy system. And then if we can change the energy system somehow, um, technological innovation or finding new types of energy, um, usually both, then we can restructure society um, into maybe more complexity, but also a different kind of complexity. So the the 19th century wasn't simply a more complex um, controlled solar agrarian regime, it was qualitatively different. 
So industrial society isn't just more complicated agrarianism, it's different. And the 20th century isn't just a more complex 19th century, it's qualitatively different. And so as we move away from fossil fuels into an alternative energy-driven system, it's not necessarily the case that we'll have less energy, we'll just have a different kind of energy. And having a different kind of energy means, I think, that we'll have to have a different kind of society. And that transition is probably going to be um, full of friction. Uh, but once we get there, that society may be more complex than the one we have now. Um, it'll just, that complexity will just look different. And so maybe we will be more urbanized. So right now we're what? About, I think the UN estimates 57% of global population um, lives in urban centers. So maybe in a world without fossil fuels, our mobility is lower. And so we're at 80% urbanization. And maybe in an urban center, all of the infrastructure, um, transportation, otherwise, um, can be driven by um, alternative energies. And so everything's electrified and we can use solar, wind, hydro, um, maybe nuclear, if we're, if we're happy with that, um, to power, power the city. And so that's a very different kind of way of living, um, different socioeconomic system, different social political system than we have now, but it's not necessarily less complex. And so I think it's not necessarily the case that we collapse. I think it's not necessarily the case that as we transition away from fossil fuels, we have less energy. So I think um, Tim DiMuzio um, argues that we live in this um, petromarket civilization, uh, which I think is a really interesting concept. But he too argues that you know once we uh, move away from fossil fuels, whether it's because we run out of them or because we transition away, um, we collapse. And I, and I don't think we're quite on that, that knife edge. I think where we are is we need to move, we will move to something different. Right. And what that will look like, I don't know, but it'll, it will look different. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's my response. If we get to um, a point where climate is climate change is so dramatic and we decide that the only thing we can do is stop using alternative energies or excuse me, fossil fuels. And then the amount of energy we have falls to 20 percent of what we have now, then sure, things are going to be quite dark. But I don't see how that that happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can all agree that things will be different. Otherwise, there's loads of debate, and <laughs> uh, I don't know. We yes. should get we should get Tainter on. Uh, perhaps yes, we, should. we should also get Peter Turchin on and the, yeah. the theory around elite overproduction. But yeah, um, yeah perhaps for, for another time. Yes, that would be. You get a panel. That would be fascinating. Thinking about what you're saying about transitions into future complex society i'm from a slightly different perspective how do you think that complexity can maybe help to address a sort of generational and generalized sort like malaise that seems to just seems to sort of hover over everything and everyone i think there's like a generalized anxiety i know that i speak to people and they're kind of everyone says to me like why are we so anxious as as people, I think, well, maybe if you tried thinking about like as a society, it's just like a very anxious time. And I wonder if you think that complexity can help make sense of that and how that can maybe in a transition be a way to remedy this, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. Um, so this is an issue, a question, a problem that I deal with um, regularly. So I teach a class um, at Tulane on um, energy, complexity, climate and IR. Um, and <clears throat> students, so we just had our second session yesterday and immediately after the session, one of the students asked to see me because um, they were very 
uh, depressed <laughs> about the lack of progress we had made, which speaks to your generalized anxiety um, and malaise. Um, and so, so I understand what you're saying. Um, and my answer to your very good question is that complexity science, complexity theories can help by encouraging us to think about the problem in a different way. So I think the way we think about climate change in the absence of more progress is that we focus on actors. And so who's to blame? It's the oil industry. Um, who's to blame? It's the top 1% in their consumption patterns. Who's to blame? It's the what, what have you. Um, and sure, oil industries defend their interests. That's true. But it's also the case that we are all huge consumers of energy. <laughs> and so it's not clear to me why we blame the suppliers and forgive the um, consumers. And so if we shift to a complexity world, what we see is that we live in a society that requires huge amounts of energy to operate. And if we want to deal with climate change, the issue is we need to reimagine, reconstruct our society so that it doesn't run on fossil fuels, so that it runs on alternative energies. Um, and that needs to, that requires lots of imagination, requires lots of innovation, and it requires lots of action. Um, but once we recognize that, that the issue isn't that the fossil fuel companies are preventing us to move from moving to something else, um, then the problem becomes um, our own responsibility um, and creates opportunities for us to uh, bring about change in ways that are decentralized, um, but can be very fundamentally transformative. And if you want one example of this, Henry Ford. I can't think of anyone who had a bigger impact on the 20th century than Henry Ford. He figured out how to use gasoline, which was used to be an industrial waste, um, for a very productive purpose and transformed everything we do. Uh, you can talk about you know Hitler and Stalin and um, Mao and these other important figures, and I don't mean to just um, discount their significance, but in terms of the impact, lasting impact on our socioeconomic structure, can you think of someone who's been more impactful? And he was just one person. And what he really wanted to do was make a tractor, get people out of the fields. Right? Um, and so have an idea, figure out how to implement it. And um, the rest kind of evolves, takes care of itself. So that would be my answer. I don't know if that's a good answer, but that-, that no, It is, it is a good answer, sort of like, empowering people to to sort of take action sort of think your way out of paralysis instead of always think not thinking out of paralysis but acting to get yourself out of this paralysis that kind of seems to be induced by anxiety um, yeah. it's quite an empowering empowering response thank you thank you well you're welcome i think also we sit around and wait for the state to do stuff and um clearly the state isn't going to save us here um i'm not sure they have the abilities to save us because they don't actually control the energy systems. And so we need to find other ways that don't rely on the state to um, kind of work around the um, inaction. Yeah, brilliant, Thomas. Thanks. Uh, I think that's a great reflection to to close on. And perhaps, you know, one of the, the sort of the meta motifs of, of this whole conversation is the kind of belief in control the belief that we can control nature using technology that we can the, you know we can rely upon the state to intervene and um have certain 
foreseen consequences uh and as garrett harden said you know it's when you intervene in nature you can never do just one thing (laughs) and uh, it just seems to me you know another takeaway is that we all need a bit of humility Mm -hmm. uh and we need to i think also perhaps um be a little less hard on ourselves (laughs) Yeah. Given that situation, given that predicament we find ourselves in, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think so. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a wild ride. Uh, we're really excited to see what you publish next. I can't wait right. to, to to read the book. And I hope we'll have another chance to continue this conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for um inviting me. It's been been a terrific experience for me it's been great meeting you all it's been a fun conversation um so i look forward to seeing this um on your website it'll be fun brilliant thanks thomas thanks for tuning in to imperfect utopias or bust global governance futures if you liked this content please do leave us a comment and subscribe if you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books other resources listen to past shows and to join our community go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.